Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Katie and I'll be your conference operator for today's call. Right now all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star, then zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name is Madge Kaplan and I am Senior Communications Strategist at IHI and I am the moderator for these monthly discussions. They're designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an an article and action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today our featured author is Dr. David R. Flum. He's the first author of the article, Early Mortality Among Medicare Beneficiaries Undergoing Bariatric Surgical Procedures, that was published in the October 19, 2005 issue of JAMA. Dr. Flum is an associate professor at the University of Washington and he holds a doctorate in medicine and a master's degree in public health. His clinical interests include surgical management of gastrointestinal disorders, advanced laparoscopy with an interest in biliary tract disorders, complex abdominal wall hernias, and surgical treatment of morbid obesity. Dr. Flum's research interests include general surgical outcomes and quality of care research using population-based data, cost and utility analyses, and patient-derived outcomes. Welcome, Dr. Flum. It's my pleasure to be here. Terrific. Also with us today, as he has been with us on many calls uh, to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Flum's research with an eye toward clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, and he's a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Welcome, Dr. Kylo. Thank you, Madge. The purpose of today's and future Author in the Room calls is for you to hear directly from an author, sometimes it's authors, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. We know that making the leap from what's on the page, in this case JAMA, to changes in how care is delivered can be formidable. That's why each author in the room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert, such as Dr. Kylo, who's with us today. So here's the agenda for this hour. Dr. Flum will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings. Dr. Kylo will then take about 10 minutes to describe general improvement methods and suggest some practical ways to apply the research findings we're discussing today to medical practice. At the bottom of the hour, about 2.30 uh, or so Eastern time, or very close to that, we'll turn to questions for Dr. Flum and Dr. Kylo from callers, and we do look forward to some interesting discussion today. IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. We ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you and we do thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may carefully monitor and measure the value of these discussions. There are over a hundred of you uh, and organizations on the phone with us today. Members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. So let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. David Flum, who will provide an overview of his newly published study on early mortality among Medicare patients undergoing bariatric surgery. Welcome to Author in the Room, Dr. Flum, and we're eager to hear about your research. Well, thank you very much again for having me. Uh, this research has stimulated a lot of uh, discussion, and I welcome having the opportunity to explore it further. You know, obesity and extreme obesity, or as it's sometimes referred to as morbid obesity, is uh, truly epidemic in the United States and really worldwide. Uh, now in America, two-thirds of uh, Americans 
are living with obesity or extreme obesity, and the numbers grow each year. 10 to 12% enter the pool of candidates who are considered eligible for the operation to deal with uh, obesity, bariatric surgery, as it's come to be known. That's about 10 million Americans who are now candidates for the operation. The operations have soared in popularity for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is that we estimate that between 300 and 400,000 lives are lost per year in the states, making obesity the second leading cause of preventable death. We know that medical interventions or non-surgical interventions such as uh, behavioral change, exercise programs, weight loss regimens, and even, even pills uh, really result in what ends up being trivial amounts of weight loss for the most people who join them. 95% of people who lose more than 5% of their weight will regain that weight within five years using these non-surgical approaches. And surgery, despite having some upfront risks, is the only tool that consistently provides significant and sustain weight loss for patients. And as a result, there's been tremendous growth in the procedures. In last month's journal of the American Medical Association, there were three articles, uh, of which mine was one of them, that dealt with bariatric surgery. Uh, one of the first was Fysantry that showed tremendous growth in the use of these procedures in the last decade, something on the order of a tenfold increase from 13,000 procedures per year in 1998 to over 102,000 cases in 2003. Some conservative estimates uh, suggest that approximately 150,000 procedures will be done this year, and the growth, as you can imagine, uh, is expected to increase over time with, with, the, with the growth in the problem of obesity. Within that issue of rapid growth of the procedures come to be the question of how do we balance out the risk and the benefits of these procedures? And it's complicated because when you balance out the risk of doing an operation for obesity, you're balancing it against the risk of not doing operations for obesity. And the risks and benefits vary by either getting the treatment or not getting the treatment. We really don't know who has the most to benefit from an operative procedure for obesity, and we really don't know what is the real-world risk of those procedures among, gen among, among average patients, but also among higher-risk patients. And that's really where this a study that I performed and my group performed uh, falls because we have lots of estimates of the risk of, of death after obesity surgery. Most of them come from the case series of expert surgeons, in other words, surgeons uh, who perform the operation of a lot reporting their results, and it shows a very low risk of death from bariatric surgical procedures in the range of one out of 200 people uh, to one out of 500 people dying in the early, early period after surgery. There have also been other looks at this that have shown that there are certain patients that are at higher risk, patients with advancing age, men more than women, and those with extensive disease. The questions we were asking is, what's the impact of gastric bypass surgery, which is really the most popular form of bariatric surgery, on higher-risk patients? Uh, we wanted to look in not just in one, one surgeon's experience, but we wanted to look at the nation in total, and we wanted to follow those people over time. And we wanted to look at these two high-risk groups, patients who are older, 65 and older, and patients who are under 65 who are medically disabled, often medically disabled from their obesity. We want to look at those two high-risk populations, and conveniently, the Medicare population is just that population. It's a group of people 65 and older for whom which Medicare delivers, uh, pays for care, and patients under 65 who are medically disabled from a whole list of conditions for whom Medicare delivers and pays for care. What we were looking at is all those patients that had had an, a bariatric surgical operation as defined by a whole list of billing codes that come in to Medicare for bills. And we followed those patients over time by trying to find out whether or not uh, they died in the year after surgery. We also tried to look at surgeons, ex the surgeon's level of, of experience by looking at how many operations the surgeon had performed within Medicare population in the years prior. And, and that was the marker of whether or not this was a more or less uh, surgi uh, surgically experienced uh, surgeon. We were looking at certain outcomes. They were fairly crude, but whether or not the patient was alive or dead at 30 days, 90 days, and one year after the operation. Uh, we were, were using simple statistics to, evaluate, to compare groups of patients 
uh, over time. And we use a technique called survival analysis to look over time to see whether or not older patients have higher risk of death than younger patients. In total, we looked at over 16,000 patients who had the operation. Uh, interestingly, the average age of this group was 47 years old. Now, most people think of Medicare patients as being older, uh, but remember that there's a second group of Medicare patients who are medically disabled who are also covered by Medicare. And 90% of the patients that we looked at in our, in our study were in that Medicare disabled group with an average age of 47, which is about the average age nationwide for patients who are having obesity surgery. Three-quarters of the patients were women, and that's also uh, parallel to what has been found in many, many series of patients who are having obesity surgery. Bariatric surgery is really a procedure that, is, that women get more often than men for a whole host of reasons. The operations that we were looking at primarily were the gastric bypass operations. There's been a surge in popularity of what's called the adjustable gastric banding procedure. This study didn't evaluate the gastric banding procedure at all mostly because it's a more recent entry into the field, and there has not been a, a, a billing code specifically assigned to that until quite recently. What we found was that the 30-day, 90-day, and one-year mortality rates were higher in this group of high-risk patients than you would have expected from reading the results of surgeons who published uh, the results of patients who are not such high-risk patients. Uh, that's the, the studies that have been published before. For example, we found that if within 30 days, the risk of death was 2% in this population of patients who are Medicare beneficiaries, 2.8% at 90 days, and nearly 4.6% at one year after the operation. Uh, these, these rates are higher than those rates I talked about before, the 1 in 200 or 1 in 500 risk of death that has been previously published for the general population. And those rates may be higher because these patients are higher risk uh, or because they're older, uh, or because there are other factors that are relating to Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, but these rates are higher nonetheless. When we tried to find out the features of the patients that, that put them at higher risk, we found that men had a higher risk of death compared to women, a rate of 3.7 versus 1.5% men compared to women at 30 days. And those differences are extended uh, at 90 days in one year. And we found that older folk, those greater than 64 years old, were at higher risk compared to the younger patients. There was a 4.8% risk of death within 30 days in patients 64 and older, in patients greater than 65, I should say, uh, versus 1.7% uh, in those who were under 65. Uh, and we saw the breakdown was even more extreme as patients got older. In fact, within the, within the article, there's a table that shows the risk of death if you uh, by age category and showing that in the very highest age group, those patients greater than 75, the risk of death was quite high in the, in the, in the teens, in the 18 to 19% rate at 30 days. And this is higher than most people have considered because most people, uh, most, most prior studies have not looked at operations in that older age group. We found that the differences between being an older patient and a younger patient in terms of your risk of death uh, are there years after the surgery and that older folk have a consistently higher risk of death after the operation. In fact, we found that after you adjusted for all the other important features like their extent of disease and whether or not they were male or female, people 65 and older were 2.7 times at greater risk of dying early on after surgery than younger patients. The silver lining to this cloud, perhaps, is that when we looked at surgeon experience, we found that the most experienced surgeons, the surgeons who performed the greatest number of these procedures in older patients, had results that were virtually identical when operating on older and younger patients. In other words, just because you're over the age of 65 does not mean that you have to have these higher risks of death. Surgeons who are more experienced in operating in this group of patients either are doing something different or selecting patients in a different way such that the risk of death in that group of patients is not as high. Turns out that the vast majority of patients nationwide who are 65 and older who are having this operation were not going to surgeons who were highly experienced, and that's one of the reasons we were seeing these differences in rates. There are many limitations to a study like this, not the least of which is that the information that was generated to create this data set was really created for billing purposes. And so the types of information that we would want 
to have on patients in, ter in terms of their weight, for example, or the extent of their diseases, or lots of other features simply not available in this sort of data set. Um, we, there are lots, several other problems, uh, one of which is that we're looking at the risk of death from surgery, but we have no idea from this data set about the risk of death from not having surgery. And that's an important comparator group for surgeons and patients and other types of doctors who are thinking about whether or not bariatric surgery may be right for their patients. The lack of a comparator group is important because, as I said, we know that obesity is a leading cause of death nationwide. So in conclusion, the, the take-home messages here are threefold. One, that in the Medicare population, the risk of death after gastric bypass is higher than some sources would suggest at 2% within 30 days. I'll just highlight that there have been many series by excellent surgeons in the general population that have shown risk of death within 30 days to be in the 15 to 2% range. So I don't think these numbers are that far off from what's happening in the, in the real world among the general risk patients. But, the, but it's important to know that this 2% rate is really among a higher-risk population. The second is that uh, among older patients, the rates are much higher than previously reported. There's been desire to extend the, 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 uh, the use of bariatric surgery to patients in this higher-risk, uh, higher older population. And I think this study really helps to highlight that among those patients, the risk of death in the general community is much higher than we had previously expected, nearly 5% within 30 days. And I think, I think those numbers are clearly surprising and informative to people and, and, and doctors who are considering surgery in this higher-risk, older population. Last is that, that we found equal risk to younger patients when they were operated on by the most experienced surgeons. And this per, perhaps provides an opportunity down the line to help us improve the quality of care for older patients who do decide to go forward with bariatric surgery. And that perhaps is a policy alternative a policy improvement opportunity for people who are involved in policymaking regarding bariatric surgery. That's a, that's a quick 10-minute evaluation of our study, and I'd love to hear some questions about it and be glad to answer them. All right, 10 minutes pretty much on the nose. Uh, thank you, Dr. Flum. That a, was a very, very clear presentation. We're going to turn now to what the research and um, our author's recommendations uh, and analysis here suggest about changes in clinical practice that clinicians and those perhaps in a position to propose new practice ideas might consider. Uh, so we go to now, uh, we now go to uh, Dr. Chuck Kylo, uh, who's going to help kind of walk us through the world of improvement and how it might apply in this instance. Thank you, Madge, and uh, greetings to everybody on the call. I don't know how many of you have been on past calls, so this piece may seem a little bit redundant if you have, and I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible because there are a large number of participants on the call, which is fantastic, and I think that this topic has just generated a lot of interest, and we want to get to your discussions, to your, to your questions. Um, we don't know which direction you're going to take the, call, take the call in terms of your questions, but we'll be very interested to, uh, to hear from you. What I'd like to address uh, briefly, as Madge said, is this challenge of taking this knowledge and putting it into action to make sure that we're closing the gap between what we know and how we practice. And I think this is a particularly good study for us to focus on and, and to do that, and we'll talk about that more during the question and answer period. So the value of this good research is to give us guidance on how to do better. Uh, the question is, how do we go about doing that? What tools do we have to help us to do better? And at IHI, as many of you know, we use a powerful tool called the Model for Improvement to help us to achieve more rapid uh, changes in the way we practice to improve our performance. The model is very, very simple. In essence, it's a form of learning that is very similar to the scientific method. Uh, it is applied to the way we manage things, in this case, our, uh, a clinical issue such as obesity. The model really has two parts, and I'm just going to walk through those parts very quickly. The first part is an explicit determination of aims uh, and measures, and then the second part is, um, is how you test those changes in the real world. So this first part has three components. The first component of the first part is basically a statement of aim. I'm surprised as we continue to do uh, improvement work how many groups come together, meeting after meeting and in various and sundry initiatives, without a clear sense of purpose or a clearly stated goal. It is very important as we get into this work to be very clear that we have a clearly stated goal. In this case, it could be, as an example, to reduce cardiac surgery 
excuse, excuse me, to uh, reduce obesity surgery uh, mortality by, say, 50% in this particular age group, those over 65. Well, concordant with that, the second part, second component of this first part is uh, the requirement that we have measures to tell us how we're doing. So if we're going to get to a reduction in mortality with this surgery, then we have to have specific measures that tell us where we are uh, in terms of our current mortality, which requires, obviously, that we measure our performance. So some of the measures in this case would be uh, surgeon-specific mortality rates, uh, and uh, things along those lines. The third, piece, the third piece is ideas for improvement. How do we know what we ought to be testing that would help us to lead to better, demonstrably better, measurably better uh, uh, progress towards our aims? Well, the second part of the model for improvement is this issue of rapidly testing changes in the way we practice. In improvement parlance, we call this the plan, do, study, act, or PDSA cycle. You plan a test do the test, collect data, and study the results, and then act on those results in terms of another cycle of testing or something along those lines. And this is commonly known as the scientific method, obviously. We use it every day in our lives as we do different things, as we learn to do different things. So the PDSA cycle, um, if it doesn't sit well with you, uh, which it may not if it sounds too much like quality improvement jargon, that's fine. Just think of it as a scientific method. The important point is that we have a methodology for explicit, rapid, action-oriented learning and the testing of change, and that's what it's all about. The last topic to mention is when do we move from testing to implementation? When are we ready to stop testing and start making the changes that we've tested a regular part of our everyday practice? And the answer obviously depends on many factors, but when you want to run a sufficient number of tests where the data tells you that your system is responding in the right way, that your measures are moving in a way that you would want them to move, then it's, it's time to go from testing the changes to implementing them in a broader uh, uh, range of surgeons as an example or across a whole number of clinics uh, and, uh, and to continue measuring your performance. Dr. Flum made several recommendations based on his study, and we're going to talk about them now. Uh, we will open the, uh, the lines for your questions and answers in just a second uh, as we get into some of these changes. The important thing to keep your mind on is uh, what is it that you can do with this data to help us to care for the obese patients in a more effective manner? Dr. Flum, having said that, uh, why don't we uh, begin to get into that? You know, it's interesting. I'd like to start off the discussion in this way. Um, we had some conversation over email, you and I did, as we were preparing for this. And as I continue to think about it, it's amazing to me how much this whole uh, world is now, much like the cardiac surgery world was about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and we were at a state where very few uh, cardiac surgeons were actually measuring their performance or knew what their mortality was. Uh, and then, because of some public reporting, they were forced to measure their, their mortality. Uh, there, is, there are a lot of surgeons who are sort of coming online to do this surgery very quickly. I suspect that there is very little in the way of organized efforts to measure performance at the physician-specific level. Is that true? Well, I think what you're seeing and sensing is a revolution in surgical care. It started with heart surgery for lots of obvious reasons, not the least of which is that in New York State, public reporting of heart surgical outcomes shook up the whole community and gave us an insight about what happens with complex care and how there are how there's tremendous variability between centers and between surgeons in performance. The cardiac surgical evaluations began a process where we where we started to say what is the, how much of that variability between different centers and between different doctors is acceptable and how much isn't and and what would it take to reduce the variability so that when you went to hospital A you got the similar similar results from when you went to hospital B. In heart surgery, it uh, the process was started uh, because of because of these high profile uh, cases of of adverse outcomes or deaths at certain hospitals. And I think you're seeing sim a similar thing happen in bariatric surgery. And one of the differences, however, is that there have been uh, there have been very sincere efforts by large na national organizations to start 
the process of understanding what makes a good outcome happen and regulating that process and, and, and further regulating it so that those centers that use those good practices are recognized as such. The American Society of Bariatric Surgery and the American College of Surgeons are both working on initiatives to recognize the things that, the things that work best and then to recognize the hospitals that do those things that work best. And I think both are, are emphasizing hospital level or center level outcomes rather than physician level outcomes for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but I think that both, those, both of those initiatives are putting, are, are putting bariatric surgery in the same place that heart surgery was in the early 1990s, late 1980s. And I think in the same way that outcome, outcomes improved with heart surgery, we should expect them to improve with bariatric surgery as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that, and I'm sure we'll get into more questions like that. Why don't we go ahead and open it up for, uh, for questions at this time? All right. Uh, thank you both, Dr. Kylo and Dr. Flum. A quick reminder that IHI and JAMA do plan to study the impact of Author on the Room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you, and we do appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of this type of discussion. So we are indeed going to turn to questions from our callers. You may have questions of various types. Bariatric surgery, as we've been hearing, is a new frontier of medicine and of increasing popularity as one remedy to the obesity epidemic. Uh, the research presented today sheds some important light on associated mortality in a particular studied population. So what to do? Uh, what should guide decision-making going forward? Please, if you could, state your name, where you're from. We always love to hear uh, about your discipline and to whom your question or comment is directed. So let's go ahead to questions. Thank you. If anyone has a question, you may press zero one on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. We will then open up the lines one by one so each of you may ask your question. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero two. So again, if anyone has a question, press zero one on your touchtone phone. That will be just one moment for questions. And the first question will come from Mary Leong with Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. Please go ahead. Yes, um, I was wondering what kind of measures or if it's even been discussed with pediatric bariatric surgery. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Flum? Yeah, there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, effort going on right now at, at a couple of centers around the nation, and uh, the NIH is actively investigating the role of bariatric surgery in adolescents. Uh, it's a very complicated um, bit of questioning. Uh, Tom Inge, I-N-G-E, at University of Cincinnati, has really taken uh, the lead on, um, on creating a prospective data set to uh, better understand the role of uh, bariatric surgery in adolescents, and I refer you to him for, um, for, for, for further details. Um, I think that as a society, uh, adolescent bariatric surgery really challenges our fundamental notions about the obesity epidemic. You know, uh, it reminds me to mention that uh, there's an interesting paradox with obesity surgery. If somebody has a colon cancer, there's a universal agreement that that person should be sent to a colorectal surgeon. If somebody has obesity or morbid obesity, there's by no means a universal uh, con concept that that patient should be sent to a, a surgeon who does bariatric surgery. And in fact, less than 1% of people who are eligible for the procedure get the procedure. And the same is true for adolescents. I would say it's more true for adolescents that because obesity is such a complex um, in entity with so many behavioral factors, genetic factors, societal factors that play into it, um, the, the, lack of, uh, the lack of consensus about, about the obvious treatment um, for a disease or an entity that has so many factors underneath it uh, means that there's, that there's a lot of different beliefs about whether or not your approach should be behavioral or genetic or societal. And surgical is perhaps the most blunt approach to it. And uh, many people have challenges thinking about children getting obesity surgery because where do children get their food from? Their parents. So I think it fundamentally challenges our notions about how to address obesity. I think with 10 million people in the United States eligible for the procedure, if anybody thinks that the solution to the problem is obesity surgery for everybody, then we have a fundamentally flawed society. 
and that we need to work on the behavioral and the societal and economic components of obesity. Um, perhaps there's no better group to start working on it uh, than in children and, and adolescents. And I think obesity surgery should be part of that approach for those kids in the extreme, in an extreme group where we can stop asking the question of why they're heavy and just deal with the question that they have extreme obesity. Uh, and, and I think that's what Dr. Inge and his group are working on right now. Thank you Thank very you. much uh, for that question. Dr. Flum, I was just going to ask you if you would repeat that uh, researcher's name and the spelling of his last name at the University of Cincinnati. Cincinnati, yeah. Tom Inge, I-N-G-E, and he's at Children's Hospital in Cincinnati. All right, I appreciate that. Okay, next question. All right, the next question will come from Joyce Sale with Beaufort Memorial Hospital. Please go ahead. Yes, it's Beaufort, as in beautiful South Carolina. <laughs> Uh, the question I have is, do you have any plans to refine the research into finding out how these people have died? It's a great question. Um, there's a lot of plans for expansion of these studies. The, well, I'm one of the six uh, principal investigators in a study called LABS, the Longitudinal Assessment of Bariatric Surgery. And that's an NIH-sponsored multi-million dollar grant intending to really comprehensively assess both the risks of the surgery and the benefits of the surgery. Remember, the work I've presented today is really just one side of the coin, which is the risks. But the risks may just be right if the benefits are overwhelming. And so assessing both the risks and the benefits uh, is the way you'd comprehensively uh, look at this. And we're also, within labs, which, as it's come to be known, looking at why people die. What are, what are, the, what are the causes of death and what, what's preventable and what's not preventable? Um, there have been some studies that have looked at autopsy results, specifically in the state of Pennsylvania, finding that pulmonary embolism, of blood clots that start in the leg and spread up to the lungs, um, uh, are, are one of the leading causes of death after obesity surgery. And there are a lot of efforts to reduce the risk of pulmonary embolism that are at, at, at around the time of operation, but we think that that may be one of the leading sources of preventable death. There are two other reasons. One is that when we do this operation, this is probably the largest stress to a patient's body that they have had in their entire lives. Many of these patients with extreme obesity have, uh, are, uh, have, have a lot of functional compromise. They haven't been able to walk or exercise. In a way, the stress of the surgery is the greatest exercise their body has been put through in 20 years. And living with obesity for many, many years um, has an impact on your heart, your lungs, and your kidneys, and the rest of your body. That stress may not be as well tolerated uh, if, if you're older or higher risk. And, and it may be that simply we're seeing the effects of, of, uh, of chronic obesity on the heart, lung, and kidneys uh, when we have death. But the last reason is technical reasons. This is a, this is a complicated operation. Uh, it's hard to describe over the telephone, um, but it involves taking the stomach, which is usually the size of a melon, and reducing it down to the size of a large egg with a set of stapling devices that, divide, that staple and divide the stomach away. Once you have that egg-sized pouch that's your new stomach, that, that, that egg-sized pouch gets reattached to the intestines. Uh, first, you have to divide the intestines and then reattach that uh, tube of intestines both to the egg-sized pouch and then back to the intestines. That's three opportunities for the bowel to either leak or bleed or get infected. And this is a complex operation, especially when it's done through four or five small cuts, what's called laparoscopically. This high-risk operation has occasionally, uh, as would be expected, complications, and that's probably one of the other reasons that people die uh, from this operation. Leaking at the reconnection sites is, is probably occurring at least half the time when there are deaths. Labs is going to better refine how often each of these occurs, but you need thousands and thousands of patients to look at this in a meaningful way, and that's one of the reasons why labs was put together. All right. Thank you very much. Matt, uh, go I, ahead, Dr. Kyler. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, that was. A, I think that was a great question, and I think it leads to a lot of good thinking and conversation about uh, improvement in this regard. Uh, in the cardiac surgery world, it's an imperative to know why the patients are dying in order to allow you to make improvements in the cardiac surger, surgical process. Um, in Buford, I'm not sure if you have a uh, an obesity uh, surgical. Um, program for obese patients at present or not, but it would be interesting to hear from you if you did and to see what you're currently measuring. 
until we know why patients are both dying and what complications they're having, then it's very hard to make discrete interventions to improve the process. And that would lead us to think about a set of measures that are critical so that we know what our current performance is uh, and so that we can begin to make those interventions. Otherwise, uh, we have patients who are not doing well, but we have no clear data or idea as to how many of them are not doing well, and therefore we have no imperative to, to, to improve the process. So that measurement piece is critical and it needs to be measurement at the organizational level and certainly at the physician-specific level also, which is a very difficult sell for many physicians. Dr. Flum, are you familiar with uh, any programs around the country that are measuring themselves in that level of detail? Absolutely, and I go back to these two programs by the Society of Bariatric Surgeons and the American College of Surgeons, looking at a common set of metrics about process of care and outcome related to that care. Uh, but we are really in, uh, in a golden era of obesity surgical and obesity research where we're just trying to, we're just getting a first inkling at the components of care that really result in optimal outcomes and really just starting to get uh, enough of the, of, of the data infrastructure together to, to better understand adverse outcomes. Dr. Kylo raised a great point about surgeon-level results, but, you know, if, Thankfully, these results that we're talking about, even at 2% in the most, in the most medically disabled patients, uh, that's a fairly low number. You'd need to have thousands of patients to really understand what was going wrong in the, in the one or two out of 100 that were having adverse outcomes. And we are, we are beginning an era where we will have more and more information like this. Lots of programs are trying to study their own information, uh, and, and any one surgeon will have a too few number of patients to really look at outcomes but the process of care measures that are key are better being understood. I'll list a couple of them so that you can think about your own institution and whether or not they're effectively accomplishing these things. We know that after surgery, multidisciplinary care becomes particularly important for good outcomes. Now we're not talking about death or, or living after surgery. Now we're talking about weight loss outcomes, quality of life, making sure there's a holistic approach to the patient care. We know that you shouldn't be doing this surgery unless you're part of a team that involves behavioral therapists, nutritionists, nursing care, and a very well-coordinated outpatient care system. That's a process of care uh, or a structure-related component of care that needs to be in place at every place, at every center that does obesity surgery. That's the type of thing that the American College of Surgeons and the Society of Bariatric Surgeons are making sure is in place. Uh, you could get as broad as that or as narrow as exactly what happens in the operating room and whether or not reconnections that are made by the surgeon are actually tested to make sure they're airtight, to make sure when you leave the operating room there's no leaking. That, those are the type of things that are being evaluated in these large nationwide initiatives and I think are going to be a productive way for us to improve the quality of care. Dr. Flum, this is uh, Matt Kaplan. Uh, very interesting in terms of the standards, obviously, then that are being sought. Uh, for those who are interested in some of uh, what, what the timeline might be for when more of this is going to be uh, publicized as standards or as emerging standards, uh, what would you say? They're available right now in the American Society of Bariatric Surgical website and the American College of Surgeon website. Uh, there are, there are uh, standards that have been established by both groups. Uh, there are criteria that are being um, supported by both groups. Uh, they're taking slightly different approaches to how they want to, uh, 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 about how they'll help, how hospitals will be classified, um, but the criteria are there. Uh, now, the sad part is that we're really at the beginning of the golden era and not at the end of it. Uh, the sad part is that we don't know enough of the components of care that really result in optimal outcomes to say that one, if these things were put in place, the mortality risk would be, as Dr. Kylo suggested, halved in this high-risk population. In fact, we're not there yet. So how could you take these data tomorrow and try to improve your care? Well, the American College of Surgeons has taken an approach to say that older folk have a higher risk of death. It makes sense to make sure that if older folk are having this operation, they're having it at centers that have a much higher level of experience. They have therefore established different levels of, 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 of certification or accreditation for bariatric surgical programs. One level where patients of, who are at higher risk, makes it makes sense for them to go to. Another level where it would be recommended that patients at higher risk not have their surgery. I think that's the type of way that we can start tomorrow to, impl to implement 
uh, the conclusions of this work and try to improve patient care. We may not be able to cut the risk of half at all hospitals, but if we only restrict these operations to hospitals that have demonstrated that they can do these operations at a, in a lower risk, we can have the potential to save lives and improve lives. Thank you very much. Okay, let's go to another question. All right, the next question will come from Ann Kelly with SHCQ. Please go ahead. Yeah. Hello, this is uh, Dick Anderson. I'm in the uh, Foundation for Healthcare Quality Office in uh, Seattle. Uh, and David, uh, enjoyed your presentation very much. Um, the question I have is from the uh, surgeon's perspective, uh, if, uh, as your article uh, indicates, uh, that high-risk surgeons have better results, and similarly, if there is a marked increase in the perhaps need for uh, obesity surgery in the future, the question is how do we produce high-risk, uh, uh, high-volume surgeons? Uh, what's the, uh, the, the uh, training rationale here? Are we looking toward uh, programs which will develop as the vascular or colorectal fellowships? Is that one, one of the answers? Obviously, uh, all surgeons uh, at some point in their careers are low volume. So how do we, uh, how do we assure that uh, there are an adequate number, but not too many, surgeons that are going to pursue this, this field of activity? Thank you very much. So we're talking about uh, increasing the experience, uh, those with experience. Right. Thanks, Dick. Um, and, and in full disclosure, Dick Anderson and I work on a project in Washington State to try to make sure that the quality of care that's delivered across an entire state is improved by identifying the features of care, the components of care that make sense, and making sure they're taking place at every hospital in the state. And to that end, who the surgeons are and how they get trained is a key component. It strikes me that there are two options, uh, Dick, and for others who are interested in the question. There's an approach that says we're going to make centers of excellence where highest volume surgeons are there and that's where you're going to get your care. But Dick makes a great point, which is that not everybody can be a higher, highest risk surgeon. Not everybody can even be above average. It's not Lake Obagon. And so the question is how do we get the surgeons enough training and how do we then make sure the patients are getting to surgeons with adequate levels of training? And I think the solution there is not a center of excellence approach, but rather an approach that acts like a tide that lifts all the boats in terms of quality. A, a tide that would establish minimum criteria for which we know would improve outcomes. And then that idea by the American College of Surgeons of having a tiered approach where you can have the operation at any of the hospitals that meet the minimum accreditation criteria, but if we know you're at higher risk, let's bring you to a hospital that, that, that has demonstrated a clear track record with those higher risk patients. It allows surgeons to develop the experience and increase the volume and, and, and therefore get to a point where they would be ready to do the higher risk patients over time uh, without decreasing access because that's, that's clearly a balance. If, you, if the center of excellence approach works, there's only one place or two places in town to have your operation. Access to care becomes a problem and training the next generation of surgeons becomes a problem. I think the combination of enlightened fellowship training programs a tiered approach to accreditation, and a tide that lifts all boats, a tide created by a set of accreditation standards that means that you can't walk into a hospital to have this surgery unless the, unless the minimum level of, um, of, 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 uh, of process measures are there. Uh, that's, that's the kind of multi-tiered approach that I think will work to improve the quality of care and also make sure that there's access to care down the line because right now this is the only only approach that provides significant and sustained weight loss, and this is truly an epidemic in our country. We should not use these data or any of these barriers to, to, to decrease, diminish the uh, access to care for people who really may benefit from it the most. This study just helps us better refine who the patients are that are high at highest risk so that we can determine if those operations are appropriate for them. Thank you very much. All right, let's get another question in. Okay, the next question will come from Terry Murphy with Emory University Hospital. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, my question is twofold. First is, what, what are some of the factors that contributed to the high mortality in the patient group you specifically were looking at, the older population? 
And secondly, uh, among the, the longitudinal or the long-term mortality, or excuse me, long-term complications you mentioned, pulmonary embolus, stress, and technical reasons, do you see value in the LEAP test uh, being performed either intraoperatively or postoperatively as a sort of a pre preventive measure against some of these complications? It's a great question. Um, as I mentioned, one of the limitations of, of using these sorts of databases is that some of the most important clinical components of care are simply absent. So we don't really know why these patients died. We can surmise uh, that it's in the range of those three reasons I, I, I laid out before, uh, stress to a body that has not been stressed but has had years of, of, the, bar uh, of the barrage of obesity on the heart, lung, and kidneys, uh, and then uh, technical issues that uh, might be related um, to the operation, uh, and then and then the issue of, uh, of of the development of blood clots in the legs that go to the go to the lungs, the leak test. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, the idea of uh, you connect the, uh, that egg-sized pouch of a stomach to the intestines. Well, it doesn't take much more than common sense to tell you that that that, that thing can either leak be leaking right away. Uh, in other words, the staple lines that, that made the reconnections or the stitches that made the reconnections didn't hold, or that those, the staple line or reconnection line broke down over time. A leak test would simply tell you, why don't you air test this like you'd blow up a balloon and, and, or blow up a tire and underwater and see if there's leaking from the tube. Why don't you do that before you leave the operating room? At least that will prevent the type of leaks that occur in the operating room, and it won't prevent perhaps the ones that occur over time, uh, but I think that makes good sense. And both of these national groups have included the question of a leak test as one of the process measures that we think are likely going to be associated with better outcomes. It remains to be seen with evidence yet whether or not it, it does make a difference, but I think it likely will over time. All right. Thank you very much. Another question. Go ahead. All right, the next question will come from David Giles with New Britain General Hospital. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you very much for this presentation. I've enjoyed it today. I, I had a couple questions. One that has been brought up was the difference between, uh, to Dr. Flum, the mortality rate in your data versus the Medicare data, I believe it is, from California in the following paper that showed quite a bit of difference. The second is, is that, uh, well, there's been a lot of talk about volume and outcomes, one of the things I don't usually see is some indication of the standard devi deviation within the groups, and it seems to me that one of the things as I read the fine print of some of the other papers that have been written about this is that there must be much greater deviation among the groups of uh, surgeons that do small volume as opposed to the ones that do large volume. And then my last question is, um, is there a difference in the outcomes, and can you look at it from your database with laparoscopic versus open surgery, and are the mortality rates, uh, complication rates, can you tell if there's a difference from your administrative database with that? Wow. Okay. Thank you very much. Three pretty hefty questions, so uh, let's see if we can get through them uh, fairly quickly. Sure. I, and I think I can, actually. Um, uh, they're all good questions and, and, and worth, worthy of a long discussion, each of them, but we'll, we'll try our best. You know, we looked at mortality rates at 30, 90 days in one year uh, among Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, most data sets of this type do not allow you to look at over time. The best that most data sets will allow you to do is look at in-hospital mortality rates. Uh, the, the, in the same edition of JAMA, uh, the Calif a group uh, led by Dr. Zingmond in UCLA looked over time in the California data set and found that, that among Medicare patients, they had the highest rates of early death, 30% mortality rate of approximately point, I think it was point 0.9, um, which is much higher than the general population, but lower than what we found nationwide. Question is, what are they doing differently in California? Are they operating on patients who are lower risk or higher risk? We don't know. Are there things about the hospitals that are different or the hospitals that do these operations in California that are different from others? We don't know as well. But I will say that our group and Dr. Zingman's group are working together to better answer the question, what's going on in California? How is it different than the rest of the nation? And hopefully we'll have that information for you uh, within the next year. The next important question has to do with standard deviation regarding volume. So in other words, are there are differences within this nationwide group. Are there differences between surgeons and hospitals that do a lot of these operations versus those that don't? And that's a great question because typically the way it works is that if you do a lot of an operation, you're better at it. 
Uh, the more times you swing a bat, the more often you hit the ball. The idea being that something about the way you swing the bat gets better, but also something about the pitches you swing at gets better. Maybe the, you're selecting patients that are, that, are, that are going to do better. And, and, and in obesity surgery, it may very well work that way, that you're, you're getting better at it, your, system is, your hospital system is getting better at it, and maybe you're selecting patients that are, that are, that are at lower risk. It's an important issue, especially in California, where, for example, patients who have Medicaid simply can't get access to an operation and may also be at higher risk for the operation. And I think that's some of the components that need to be better understood about the high-volume versus low-volume surgeons are whether or not high-volume surgeons are simply not operating on patients with extreme levels of obesity because that's just not in the nature of a high-volume commercial program in obesity surgery. If that's the case... Some of the lower risk among higher volume surgeons may be related to which pitches they swing at as much as how well they swing the bat. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, that's very clear. Dr. Kylo, I wanted to bring you back in here for a minute. I know the clock is ticking here, but I wanted to say from your perspective, because there probably are many people on the phone uh, who are often in your position as an internist or in a uh, general uh, practice uh, where you might be the sort of the first step uh, in somebody's journey of trying to make some kind of a decision and use some sort of recommendation uh, for surgery or not. And I wonder, are there some quick things that you might even say that, you know, have uh, occurred to you even based on uh, our, the new research in this discussion today, about steps you might take? Thanks, Madge. I think Dr. Fulmer already hit on some of this stuff quite nicely, but it is worth uh, thinking about it. It is... We really are at the early stages of this, I believe, as our, as our society and certainly our medical community begin to take obesity much more seriously. And we will all certainly start thinking of it much as we think about diabetes as a chronic condition, which it certainly is. When we think about diabetes, we have a very clear pathway of care that we know about that can be informed by something called the chronic care model, popularized by Ed Wagner and colleagues at Group Health in, uh, in Seattle. Um, and, uh, and so we understand the whole process of care around a diabetic. Uh, and as they proceed through different forms of care, we have mileposts to tell us how they're doing. They're glycosid hemoglobin as, example, as an example. We have thus far taken obesity much less seriously in general, I believe, uh, we frequently don't even pay attention to it, even though the patient is sitting right in front of us. We'll treat their blood pressure, but we, we failure to have that hard conversation about obesity, and we fail to have programs in place to address the obesity. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Dr. Flum alluded to the fact that most treatment programs do not have a high rate of success outside of the surgical realm, unfortunately. But I think we have a lot of work to do in that regard as well. So at the primary care level, I think we have to understand who is obese. We ought to have, uh, as an example, uh, BMIs on everybody. Our systems ought to be able to tell us who those patients are, who the entire uh, population of obese patients are, and how we're doing against that population and managing their diabetes because it is such an important factor in the health of, uh, of our individual patients. And then we need to develop very specific programs, and people will say, well, we don't get paid for that. In many cases, we don't at this point. But we need to develop very specific interventions to try to impact that and then know, as Dr. Fum also said, who are the appropriate patients to refer on for surgical management. So that is how I think about the system of care and how we need to develop it for obesity as a chronic condition in the primary care practice, Madge. Thank you very much. All right, we're going to sneak in one more very quick question and hopefully a quick answer uh, before we need to wrap up. All right, then the last question will come from Paulina Dunker with University Medical Center at Princeton. Please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, my quick question is for Dr. Flum, and it's about if any information can be gleaned from the discharge data about pre-op preparation and teaching or assessment that may have contributed to or the lack of it may have contributed to the mortality rates of this population. And, and in keeping with the quick question, I'll give you a quick answer, and the answer is no. <laughs> okay, thank you. Imagine that was so quick. I'd, I'd actually, actually like to address one more thing. 
<laughs> that's true. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put so much pressure. That's, that's okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry. I, I was probably a little too intimidating there. No problem. Uh, let, okay. let me let me let me let me ask this. You know, in the in the cardiac surgery world, and I really think it's it's instructive to reflect on their experience, and it really is interesting that the whole, if you just take bariatric surgery, which has emerged so quickly. Uh, and how the profession is handling that from a quality perspective, it really is fantastic, saying that we actually have learned something in the last 15 years, which is fantastic. Now, you know, if you look at the cardiac surgeon's experience, there was a huge hesitancy to measure their own performance for a long time until the New York public reporting of their, of their outcomes came out, and then some groups took it seriously. Uh, and the first step is to understand your performance if you really want to make improvement in it, which, which means we have to measure it at the physician-specific level. Uh, and, then, and then the next step that the cardiac surgeons went through was to really get specific about defining the process of care, and, and, and that seems obvious as well. The third step, and I'd, I'd like Dr. Flumner to reflect on this a little bit, that I think is, is magical and it, what has really helped the cardiac surgeons uh, in many instances uh, is one of the most powerful interventions is for them to start going to each other's programs and looking at their, uh, each other's programs, site visits have been tremendously important and having collaborative uh, meetings where organizations come across, come together from across the country and get together over a period of time. And we at IHI, as you know, ran one of those initiatives in cardiac surgery. And what we found was that folks in Los Angeles were doing interoperative extubation of their cardiac surgery programs when the standard in, in New England was still to keep people intubated for 24 hours after cardiac surgery, clear cost differences, clear outcome differences, and the folks in New England did not even know that the folks in the Los Angeles were doing that. Uh, so what do you think, Dr. Flum? Good idea to uh, begin to kind of study each other's, uh, that, the habits of others in other programs? Well, not only do I think it's a good idea, but it's exactly what Washington State has been using as a model to, uh, to understand bariatric and other surgical interventions such as colorectal or appendicitis surgery. By building a collaborative, a tie that raises all the boats, we get all the members of the collaborative together to learn the experience in Spokane and compare it to the experience in Seattle to learn from folks all over the state working together. To develop those tight collaborations requires a spirit of, uh, of, of communal learning and also requires the type of protection uh, from, for disclosure of data uh, from a medical legal risk perspective that's quite unique. Washington State has uh, really taken a leadership role in allowing that to happen. And uh, our program is called the Surgical Clinical Outcomes Assessment Program. It's intended to do exactly what you just described, Dr. Kahlo, and I think it's going to be an effective tool. It's been an effective tool in cardiac surgery, which is why we've expanded it to abdominal surgery. All right. Well, uh, now I guess we really do have to wrap it up. Uh, that's all the time we have for questions and this discussion today. There will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue a conversation with one another. And you can find a link to this discussion group right on the home page of IHI.org. Look under Community, then Discussion Groups. In order to view or participate in the discussion group, you must register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. And we are coming to the end of this ninth in a series of hour-long discussions called Author in the Room. Thanks very much, Dr. David Flum and Dr. Chuck Kylo, for your knowledge and guidance today. And I do want to give you each an opportunity to make a brief closing remark. Dr. Flum, why don't we start with you? Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to share this information. You know, we, did, we found higher rates of mortality in a higher-risk population. That in and of itself is not surprising, I guess, for obesity surgery. Uh, but what are the implications of this? Medicare policy is now at a crossroads, and they're trying to decide how they want to make a national coverage decision about obesity surgery. I think this information clearly helps inform patients, doctors, and healthcare policy experts about who high-risk patients are and what's the best way to assure that they get the highest level of quality of care. This is one part of a discussion that needs to be balanced by the question, what are the benefits of the operation? And I would hope that this information will be used to improve care rather than restrict access to it down the line. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Kyler. Well, I would reiterate, uh, thank you, Madge, I would reiterate uh, what I said before is I would encourage folks from an improvement perspective to really begin to understand their own individual performance and their organization's performance, to get specific about defining their processes of care 
and then to, uh, to engage in a process of making those processes better, either by creating a collaborative such as they have in, in Washington, which I would really applaud, uh, uh, or by doing site visits, all of which I think are very, very useful. All right. Thank you again, both of you, very, very much. This is a monthly call that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on December 21st, and the topic will be clinical decision support to improve the appropriateness of antimicrobial prescribing. And the article appears in the November 9th issue of JAMA, and you can find details on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As a reminder, my last one of this call, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether author in the room participants can make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion of risks of bariatric surgery among Medicare recipients suggests some changes in practice clinicians can test on a small scale. We are asking all participants to complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after this call and three months from now. Thanks to all of you who joined us today and for taking the time to complete the surveys. Thanks again to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day, everyone. <laughs>